Modern Football Group. Same game, viewed differently. In today's discussion, we are joined with sports lawyer and multi-potentialite Daniel G, who talks to us about his career to date, various pursuits, key insights regarding breaking into the industry, and a very special exclusive. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and be sure to drop us a like and subscribe if you enjoy the show. Greetings to our podcast listeners and welcome to episode two of the Modern Football Group podcast. This is your host, Jordan Barrow. And on today's episode, we have another amazing guest, certainly an individual who has a tremendous impact on me, as well as many other budding sports industry enthusiasts. He's an extremely talented individual with a multifaceted collection of skills, such as being a sports law partner, an author, writer, blogger, podcaster, trustee, chairman, and most recently business owner, an octad fret, if you will, is Mr. Daniel G. Daniel, we are humbled and privileged to have you join us today on this summery evening. How are you? Yeah, great. No, Jordan, thanks for the intro. Um, yeah, there's lo- look, I'm really looking forward to just having a bit of a wide-ranging chat. I think there's tons of, um, of great stuff that you've sent over that we've prepped beforehand, and talking about journeys, some substantive stuff in the industry, but just generally about you know, developing, developing oneself in the, in the sports industry, which, you know, at heart, all of us are football and sports fans, really. And uh, trying to combine those two things are, uh, for a lot of people, uh, you know, um, you know, the ideal side hustle or the ideal job in the end. Mm, absolutely absolutely um so just to uh clarify for our listeners today is going to consist of a mixed bag so i like our listeners to learn about your background your various challenges uh have a chat about your book and your current endeavors and then we'll conclude as we usually do on the modern football group podcast with our focus five questions and essentially they just consist of five questions focused on career steps and advice to give our listeners who are keen to break into the industry is that okay with you daniel sounds great excellent Cool. So just starting from almost the beginning, really, in terms of your background, can you tell us where you grew up and talk to us a bit about your upbringing? I basically grew up on seat uh, 146, row 11 of the main stand at Anfield <laughs> <laughs> over the years. But no, that, 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 that's ultimately it. I um, was born in Liverpool uh, into a football, Liverpool football mad household and wider family group. Every Saturday from when I was about seven years old, um, I'd be lucky enough to go to the game with my, my dad and we'd alternate with my brother until we both got season tickets. I'd go with my three cousins, my auntie and uncles, and it would be, you know, every other Saturday ritual, which was, you know, literally um, uh, football focus around at someone's house, leave the ground at 1.30, come back um, and decide what we do after usually a bit of early dinner and then sort of back home wherever it was. And that was, you know, my my life routine for the, you know, the best part of eight and a half months, nine months in the year. And and for all of the analogue listeners amongst uh, you guys, which there might not be too many is the truth. Um, you know, I, I was brought up on the Liverpool newspaper, Liverpool Echo and the Daily Post in Liverpool which was literally trying to every day, you know, come home. This was even before teletext and CFAX and stuff like that, where you're just trying to read, you know, maybe seven or eight columns of Liverpool news on a daily basis. Um, and that um, sort of combined with the official history of Liverpool Football Club on VHS tape, which 
I genuinely think I probably watched about three or four hundred times to the, <laughs> that I knew all the commentary, knew all the games, knew all the players back in the 50s. I mean, it's, it, it was already a complete ridiculous obsession back when I was nine years old, never mind, you know, being 39 as I um, am now. So that, that was its roots. It was, you know, an insatiable appetite for watching the game, but then actually realising that, or hoping really at the beginning that I could combine two things together, which was um, sport with my profession. Um, and at the beginning, very briefly, you know, I, I was brought up in a household of quite a lot of lawyers as well as the truth. Um, my mum was actually a professional tennis player, still is and plays veterans tennis. My, my dad's a, a lawyer. So the middle way point, as I've sort of mentioned in the book, is, you know, I'm made in the courts, either the tennis courts or the law courts is the truth. <laughs> Combined. I ended up combining it both in the end. Mm, absolutely. No, that sounds fantastic. Um, I mean, you've, you've, you've clearly got some very influential figures in your life and it's, it's only natural that you kind of sought to proceed in a, fuller, uh, a, a sort of similar vein to them, um, which is quite interesting. What is it about the law specifically that you liked? Was it purely influential from, from um, your parents or was it something that you had a general interest in yourself as well? Well, uh, my dad uh, still is a, a criminal barrister, where I'm really a commercial and contract barrister. Um, the truth was is that um, I think it was because I went on work experience with my dad and my uncle and people that they knew about trying to understand what you know what I did. But really, even until I was doing a training contract and working as a trainee lawyer, I still wasn't entirely sure um, what I was going to be doing on a daily basis as a lawyer. Never mind back in uh, probably what would have been, you know, a year before I was deciding um, what university to go to back in 1998, um, to go to uni in Manchester in 1999, to have an idea about, well, I'll do a law degree. The truth was, I did a law degree because I thought it was quite multifunctional. But, mm. um, you know, even for a while during my law degree, I was pretty sure I wanted to be a football agent rather than a, uh, than a lawyer. Um, but that opportunity just didn't arise or rather I didn't uh, I didn't you know look for the opportunity as much as I should have done at the time um, which we can maybe talk about and so it, it ultimately meant that um, by default I did my law degree enjoyed parts of it definitely I really enjoyed EU law I really enjoyed all the cases is the truth that related mm. to football so there were crazy cases like the Bosman ruling, for example, the changes to the transfer system. There were the um, cycling uh, and judo and other athletics cases which um, came across contract law and EU law and free movement issues and baseball, and basketball rather, and others, and netball, which I realised sparked my interest. And it sparked my interest because whereas with you know some rather random, let's just say, freedom of movement of worker cases mm. at the or I was like, well, this is just the case. But as soon as there was a ball involved, be it netball or football, <laughs> it was suddenly like, this is interesting. I can relate to it. And it's and the thing was, I'm sure you relate to it as well, it stuck that little bit more. It became that entrenched a bit more. So you, I found quite quickly I could build that framework of understanding and recollection as a result. So whilst mm. reading more, I was understanding more, I could develop opinions I could do lots of different things which enabled me to have conversations with people that were more in depth than just, did you see the score last night? It was, oh, did you see this industry thing that's going on at the moment? If mm. be it, 
financial fair play, be it third party ownership, be it transfers, be it unilateral breach of contract, be it broadcasting rights, be it whatever, whatever those particular areas might be. Um, it just gave me a little bit of comfort that um, if I could develop this over a long period of time, it, it might be something that could, could bear fruit. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. No, it, you know, it's really interesting to, to hear you say that. And I completely agree with you in terms of the legal side of things. It does open up so many doors and gives you such a wide and varied understanding over so much of the industry i mean obviously going by your training contract and the various sort of departments that you sit in you kind of absorb those different levels of intellect and and experiences as well at the same time and then you kind of develop and furnish your own kind of pathway in terms of where you want to be and particularly coupling that with sports must have been almost like a marriage made in heaven for you um certainly again going back to your parents having that influence around you and not to mention your own personal um affiliation with football and other various sports as well as well it seems to have been you know absolutely perfect but one thing i do note um obviously your reference to potentially looking into being a football agent so how come that didn't really materialize then was it just a case of it wasn't really the opportunity for a then or was it a case of you know you were kind of on this road to walk towards being a lawyer and you wanted to kind of stick towards that no it was by chance really i i didn't um i probably didn't try no, i didn't try hard enough i didn't actually um employ the right techniques to give me the best chance and again that's maybe something to talk about because i'm because i'm trying to write another book precisely on this idea about how to get a career in the industry that you're interested in getting involved in um, but the the point behind the point behind that was that what I was doing was I was simply just sending emails with a CV to somebody that I didn't know um, at various agencies asking them to give me a chance really and I, I believe looking back on it now I was just drowning in everyone else's anonymous noise really of like you know what separates me from Joe Bloggs or anybody else per se and what shows that I've got that value that someone else might have when there is incredible supply and limited demand um so I I know that it's the same you know for countless generations since me which is you know how do you separate yourself out how do you go above and beyond how do you um how do you um create attention towards yourself in a positive way how do you demonstrate knowledge and versatility and um, a skill set which um, supposedly a lot of people might have um, and how do you still at the same time demonstrate that the industry is somewhere something or someone for you and the truth very briefly might be skipping ahead a tiny bit on that is my journey into sport for the best part of a decade was very little to do with sport and I know it might sound counterintuitive but actually you know I was I was doing two things at the same time. I, in my legal job, law job, I was doing work from across about 10 different sectors, like mm. unsexy sectors you could ever imagine from agriculture to pharmaceuticals to financial services to the automotive industry to, um, uh, uh, to car parts and other things, basically. But what that did was give me a very good and un uh, underlying legal skill set as the discipline. And whilst at the same time, what I was doing, I was building this invisible um, sports 
knowledge and network as my side hustle. I was reading everything I could. I was speaking to lots of people. I might not have been doing the work for quite some time, but then I was blogging about stuff. I was building up that, that competency. So in effect, what I was doing to a degree was I was building my legal competency, even if it wasn't within sport, mixed with my sporting industry knowledge so that in time I could hopefully combine the two. But the reason I say all of that, and maybe you, you've experienced this as well, Jordan, as well as you know, people that are listening as well, is the thing that I think a lot of people find it difficult understanding is there are only a certain amount of entry-level sports jobs. Mm, absolutely. They're a real finite number. And I think what a lot of people get feel de- dejected and downbeat about is that if they feel that after university or whatever it might be, that they don't get that job, based on that three years worth of expertise, that then the sports industry or the entertainment industry isn't for them. Yeah. And my view on all of that is there's a very important word which a lot of people miss out on, which is the word yet. It's not happened for me yet. It's not the possibility for me yet. And that's an inherently optimistic outlook on stuff. But the reason why I say that is because I actually think but if you want to go into marketing, comms, accountancy, law, you know, a, a vast array of professional services, industries that hugely straddle the sports space, that actually I think the best thing that you can do is not do anything sports related for a while. Mm. Um, build up your core competency in whichever area it potentially is. I'm not saying don't apply for all sports jobs. Do that fine as well. But I sometimes think of being outside of the sporting world to then get in it at an early stage where you have greater competency, where your skill set is much enhanced, that you can show real um, a, a real skill set from a variety of different sectors whilst having this industry side hustle as you mm-hmm. go is sometimes a much more um, constructive way of not putting too much pressure on yourself in the beginning to be like, if I don't do sport now, then it's over and my life's over, basically. Mm. No, that's that's an incredible piece of advice, that, Daniel, because, you know, I've also encountered people of a similar sort of um, mentality whereby, you know, if they don't achieve their dream or their desires almost immediately, they kind of think it may not be for them. Or if the opportunity isn't available yet, like you say, then you know, they kind of get steered into another direction almost to kind of compensate and fill that gap um, and that void, so to speak. Um, And I particularly appreciate as well, um, you know, sort of coming from a um, loosely similar background in terms of the work you must have put in, certainly as a trainee and a junior lawyer with the sort of, you know, untold chargeable hours and, you know, billable targets and things like that, as, as well as being able to then find your own personal time to conduct your studies and your research and your knowledge building within the sport industry as your side hustle, um, as a supplement to your ongoing legal studies, you know, that must have taken a certain degree of mental fortitude from you as well, because, you know, working in the legal industry is, is, is quite, well, it's very challenging on its own as a singular narrative rather than, you know, onboarding something else as well so you know that kind of demonstrates the type of character you are I believe as a person who's able to kind of get both of those together and really push your goal and it's really interesting to hear you say that you know there's there's 
different ways to kind of getting into the industry. Um, if sport doesn't present itself immediately, then there are other, are other opportunities that can feed into that. And I think that's so useful because a lot of people will kind of, you know, conduct their studies at university, have a linear direction in their life and say, right, I want to be like Daniel, I want to be a sports lawyer. As soon as I qualify, I need to go and find, you know, some high level sports law firms or I need to try and be in house at, you know, a football club, you know, the sort of finite football clubs that are operating in house legal councils. And that will be my, my vision. But like you say, because they're so few and far between, it's not always a direct route into that. And there are certain hurdles that you have to come across and, you know, jump over and get to. So no, that's, that's absolutely fantastic. Thank you. Um, Mention one other point, Jordan, if that's all right. Yeah, of course. There are exponential opportunities for exponential opportunities. Mm. And I know it sounds a bit weird and, and sort of circular, but the more opportunities you create, the more opportunities you create. And mm. like about this linear, this linear approach, I completely agree. My linear approach couldn't be anything more non-linear, is the truth. Yeah. Look linear from the outside. But if I sketch it like this, it's literally like a spaghetti um approach towards where I, I somewhere I'm now and mm. sometimes gone backwards and, and forwards and, and sideways and and everything else that comes with it because back to the point um that I think I, I, I'm not sure if you've read it is a brilliant one of my favorite books in a while that I read called Atomic Habits by a guy called James Clear and um it's really changed my outlook on, on a couple of quite important bits uh, one of them is to do with identity um because he talks about um, the fact that a lot of people are very outcomes focused um, and rightly so, which is where do I need to get to? Mm. And if the question is where do I need to get to the uh, sorry, yeah, if the question and then the outcome is I need to become a sports lawyer or I want to work at a football club or I want to be in marketing and social media for this entity or whatever else it might be, then the habits and the routines that you undertake in order to get there are for ultimately an artificial construct because you might not get there is the truth because things mm. might get in the way. And if that's then the case, then almost those steps that you've taken can be perceived as a, a waste because if you haven't reached the outcome, the output, the goal, then what's the point of going through all of these steps in order to, to get there? And what he tries to do is invert it, which it took me a while just to work this through, which was you need to stop think. He said, "You need to stop thinking about the what, i.e., the outcome, and start thinking about the who, which is you and your identity. That if you are able to marry your routines with your identity, you ultimately become closer to the self that you actually want to become. Which to me made a lot of sense. Which is okay. You want to be um, uh, an author. That means you've got to write a book, presumably. So how do you write a book? Well." there's loads of ways or a, or a blogger for example so the closer you come to identifying with the person that you want to be the more likely you are in the long term to be the person you want to be it sounds a very straightforward concept but to me it it was a bit of a game changer in thinking well yes it's exactly right so it's not it's not thinking how do i get there it's actually thinking how do i become more of the person that gets there mm. um, and I, I really like that sort of quite nuanced distinction Mm. No, that's really, really impressive because it kind of, we get a bit of an insight in terms of how you think and how you operate. And for people that want to be and aspire to be like you, it's interesting to, to see, you know, how you've adopted certain approaches in your mindset 
to get to where you want to be and become the person who you want to be to get to the place that you want to be, that sort of thing. And, you know, it's, it's really encouraging to know that because again, you know, like we say, it's, it's very, it's very easy to kind of fall into the trap of, you know, here's my goal. If I don't make it, I'm a failure and that's it. And people look at it very binary and, you know, it kind of, they kind of define themselves almost as not reaching their goal. But that particular mindset that you've identified there is a really good approach to kind of, you know, um, rehashing and re-engineering that, that kind of um, thought narrative and turning it into something positive. Um, so, no, that's, that's really interesting. And speaking of books as well, um, naturally, one of my favourite books, um, Done Deal. Of course, no, absolutely. It's it really is one of my one of my favourite books, um, purely because from a personal perspective, um, I just love how it's been laid out, and I love the work that's involved in it, and the fact that it's so relatable. I mean, it's somewhat of a biblical asset within <laughs> football based studies. Um, I particularly enjoy the nitty gritty aspects as well around the transfer deals because um, at a young age myself, I was always involved in how transfer involved in you know with regards to how do transfers operate? Is it just the fee that's paid out? And your book really does kind of dive into those details, explore them and spread them out in such a sort of simplistic and basic way. Um, and I just find it fantastic. But for those that haven't read it, can you tell us a bit about it, please? Uh, yeah, of course. Um, the funny thing is, it's almost like um, it's such that my baby, and because I've sort of talked about it for quite a while, um, it almost... Uh, trying to find the right word for it it almost like I spent so long doing this book and invested <laughs> so much time into it it feels like my baby like my baby and as a result literally my, like my third child as my wife would probably say <laughs> um, so that uh yeah it's just um it, I, I feel a little bit like out, out of body looking back on it just thinking I've got a book published which is fantastic and people are really nice um, and uh, and positive about it so yeah, the book, more or less, uh, as its long-winded title describes, is um, trying to trying to sketch out for people the the international football ecosystem, from you know players at the heart to the clubs and leagues, to broadcasters, sponsors, international confederations, and and sort of world governing bodies, and it and it it sort of takes a bit you know the reader on a bit of a journey from. You know the most sexy stuff, which is uh, transfers and contracts to image rights and boot deals, to a little bit more technical stuff on um, financial fair play and third-party investment and stuff, and you know the big money stuff around broadcasting rights and how that works in practice, to things around the international game and managers and social media and disciplinary stuff. Um, and you know, the more I started writing it, the more I realised there was that much more to write. Um, <laughs> and interesting thing is I sort of end with a sort of crystal ball gazing idea sort of extra time section and it's actually quite interesting how a few of the things that um I wasn't quite sure about whether they would come about or not are start, starting to come about actually um in different ways I, I wasn't saying anything fundamentally um you know controversial but um sort of how football has even evolved during and hopefully post-covid um is, has been pretty eventful so my idea really was to write the book that my my junior self who was maybe just starting out in the industry would have found really interesting because no one had told me about transfer fee installments or how image rights deals work or how a player has to be careful when signing a boot deal um or you know what tweeting could get you into trouble for or those type of stuff mm. yeah 
No, absolutely. And it really does scratch beneath the surface because, you know, a lot of us will make our decisions based on the peripheral view or something. They'll just see, you know, the player, the transfer, the value, where they're going to, and that's it. I mean, you, you can be mistaken for some people who may sort of write down in their own football blogs about, you know, various transfer fees and things like that and think, oh, you know, um, we've only spent this much amount of money. Why are we not spending more? And then your book is very you know, cleverly drafted in terms of telling people that you know, there's actually more things that come come with that. So there's bonuses, you know, goal bonuses, all the various sort of supplementary additions that come with the contract that people just don't realise. And yet the money, um, I, one of the things that I was also guilty of as well was seeing a transfer fee and thinking this is the value they pay straight away, not that it's amortised or, or mm -hmm. spread over a period of time. And, you know, it's, it's just sort of little nuggets like that that are kind of very sort of simplistic but so effective um, and make things so abundantly clear in terms of how it operates. Um, and you also received incredible plaudits as well from various reputable companies. So, you know, we've got 442, Sky Sports, The Times um, and large organisations like that. How did that make you feel when you saw that your book was so well received from notable entities and professionals? No, it was lovely. Um, you know, my, my view on a lot of stuff is um, uh, you're never as good as you think and you're never as bad as you think. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, you, you take everything with a little bit of a pinch of salt um, because you know, that's what keeps you um, positively on edge of making sure that you're constantly trying to um, strive to, to get better is the truth. And I, I actually think it was probably, which was great, that I didn't really even see coming, was um, a friend of mine, Murad Ahmed, who works at the, well, a colleague that works at the, the Financial Times. Um, when I, you know, he said, do you want to uh, do a quick interview for the FT on the book? And I was like, yeah, that'd be incredible. You know, it turned into... A full page, a double page spread in the FT, like about a week or so after Dundee came out, and like literally the 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 amount of people getting in touch from the FT was was uh, on the back of the FT piece was you know fantastic. But you know it, it was funny because you know to me it's almost that that strange edge of I said it to a few people the sort of illusion of reputation if that's the right odd way of saying it, which is. I still think I was, um, you know, doing lots of cool stuff before that interview came out, i.e. I was working on loads of interesting deals and takeovers and transfers and all that type of stuff. But the, the, the publicity of that fact in a, in a mainstream newspaper then um, uh, sort of created a bit of a, you know, a positive explosion in that respect for people getting in touch and saying, well done and... Um, and the rest so that was yeah a very nice um thing for for Murad to do it's it's absolutely extraordinary um it, you know you, you must have been absolutely elated and i mean obviously speaking with you um and, and only really just meeting you essentially you can already tell you're a very sort of you know wholesome and, and humble guy um but i guess you must have been smiling from ear to ear when you saw you know those sort of um, reviews that had happened and you know it's 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 a fantastic achievement and you know for me I've not seen anything like that it was it was very unique and it was very pertinent and it was very important and the fact that you know it's being used um, in sort of you know degree level studies and stuff as a reference point is you know the fact that this this certain thing that you've created has got such a long shelf life as well it, it's kind of like a an almost 
an additional benefit to, to what you've done. Um, and something else I wanted to ask you as well, um, in terms of writing the book, was did you always have an intention to write a book or was it a case of because I know you mentioned, you know, you, you kind of would have liked something to kind of give back to your younger self to mm -hmm. get started. Was that the catalyst or was there always a bit of a desire for you to kind of, you know, um, explore that area of the market? Um, the, the truth was, is that I didn't really have a, f uh, a formed idea at the beginning. I it came around because of the blogs that I wrote on my website was the truth. I remember writing my first blogs uh, or my first journal, law journal articles that I was actually extremely proud of as a junior lawyer, but realized probably only about seven people actually read the damn thing behind the paywall. And like, you know, it's great to have in print, but actually, and I was using all these long words and pretending I was cleverer than I was and all of the, all of the usual stuff looking back and reading it now. And, and my girlfriend, now wife, Holly, was like, well, how about you, you know, simply, not simplify, but you try and take the, uh, the the legal language out and try and communicate what you're doing to the average football fan. And it was actually really difficult in the beginning, mm. trying to actually use, you know, it's like anything, if you can't explain a topic simply to someone that doesn't understand, you don't understand it yourself is the truth. Um, and what I then had to sort of try and work through and then going on to the book was, you know, in the end, by, by the time the book was published, I had I'd written about over 200 blogs on the on the football industry and given countless interviews and done various pieces in a variety of different publications, which was fantastic. So in a way, I'd honed my skill to a degree um, to, to at least think about writing the book. And. I had, you know, went through quite a long phase of uh, getting a book proposal right, you know, being introduced to an agent, David, who's my agent now, that managed to get me the book deal with Bloomsbury, which is fantastic. And even when Bloomsbury, um, you know, offered me the deal, I had no idea, really, I had no idea who Bloomsbury were. Is the I was like, I went to their offices and they were like, oh, shit, this is, these are J.K. Rowling's guys. And I was like, yeah, I was like, this is, you know, this is, this is serious. Um, uh, and then it was, a, a you know, the best part of a three-year project to as a side hustle out after hours um of my you know sheridan's day job which was pretty long hours to 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 get this into good form and the truth was um it was tricky at times because it, it wasn't particularly easy balancing it all um is the truth that my wife will attest to and she you know she's part of the the slack is the truth um but, you know, that day that um, I felt, and there were times throughout it when I was reading the manuscript, I was like, this is rubbish. And there were other days when I was reading, I was like, you know what, this is actually half decent. And I'm, I'm I, you know, I'm feeling proud about this. And the day that I actually saw the book um, in the Bloomsbury offices um, for the first time was um, was a really exciting time, um, is the truth, because there's a lot of hard work and effort that had um, that had gone into it. So, um yeah, it, it started in, you know, very baby steps of writing um, short football blogs uh, and turning it into um, turning them into a sort of fully formed book was uh, a bit of an evolutionary, you know, step. That's incredible. So it's just amazing to hear how something almost you were doing for fun by way of your blogs because you liked doing them manifested into something like this. It's it's quite incredible, really. Um, I was interested to understand that point because you know, we often get people who um, are listening who are budding authors as well. And a lot of them will think, right, like you said earlier, I need to write a book. That's my destination. That's it. But 
you know, hearing you sort of articulate the fact that actually it materialized because of something else I was doing similar, but it manifested into that kind of gives people some further insight with regards to here's another way of doing it. You know, here's another step to potentially look at rather than kind of going straight into the, the thick of actually writing a book. So no, that's, that's brilliant. Um, and just to let everybody know who's listening, Dundil is still available to buy online. I picked up mine for less than ten pounds. Um, it's an incredible book, um, which I'll absolutely attest to, and I'd encourage anybody who just has a well, literally a general interest in sport to get involved and buy this book because it is it really is incredible. Um, just following back on to earlier as well, uh, Daniel, you're talking about potentially scripting another book. So is it fair to say we can expect a similar project from you in the future then? Well, you can, we can call this an exclusive if you want. You can call it an MFG exclusive. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I've since got done with this time last year, I've, I've, been, I've been giving a lot of thought to trying to put together another book um, more or less based on a lot of things that we've talked about and some of the stories that I've sort of imparted as well around, um, you know, what type of things should anybody be doing if they want a career in the industry that they would like to work in? As simple as that. And I didn't want to make it as narrow as football. I didn't really even want to make it as narrow as sport is the truth. I almost wanted to do it across film, TV, music, fashion, computer games, you know, um, uh, and sport, obviously, as well, you know, YouTube influencer stuff, whatever else it might be, the general entertainment sphere. And um, and I ended up over the last year interviewing about 55, 50 to 55 high profile, relatively high profile clients and contacts of mine that work across those industries. Um, so I've got a lot of uh, recorded Zoom interviews from loads of people just talking about their their developmental experiences, not really like the career journey, like the stereotypical career journey, which is oh, I was lucky and I was in the right place at the right time and this happened or whatever, but almost go behind that and be like, well, t t tell me about the motivations of stuff. Tell me about times that things didn't go well. Tell me about how, you know, when things weren't going great, you were like, I felt shit and didn't want to keep going, but something was like, I'm just going to keep on cracking. And it's amazing how many times this whole sort of perseverance story, um, sorry, this whole perseverance story becomes um, a very important thing. And, and that persevering mixed with probably the two areas that, so the, 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 the idea for the book is called Build the Invisible. I'm not sure whether that would be the title in the end, but the idea really is to how you combine you know, building your knowledge base over a long period of time through routines mixed with um, developing your network. And it sounds very straightforward, but actually the truth is it's very difficult and it's very difficult to do over a long period of time. And I'm trying to sort of just, you know, demystify that whole, um, you know, how do you go about reading the stuff that you want to read or consume or listen to or speak to? And then as a result, how do you try and find people that are either at your level above or otherwise that will give you more insights into industry that will give you experience to try and find ways to get that experience and combine all of those things together with lots of these people's stories to give people again like you said with Dundeel a bit not not some theoretical approach to making it to the industry but being like if you do this if you read three articles if you speak to one person a week if you multiply that and follow that up on a weekly basis on a monthly basis
if you compound all of that together with particular routines of knowing you're not going to be up for doing it sometimes, but you still get off your ass and keep on going, and you recognize that things don't go linear as we talked about and go in a variety of different curve and curve places, that actually you still stand, get, you give yourself a very good opportunity of doing the thing you want to do. Maybe it might not be as a job, maybe it be as a side hustle, but actually combining all of those things, creating all of those opportunities um, puts you in, a, puts you in a, a much better position than it otherwise would have been. That sounds like a wonderful project, Daniel. And again, it, it kind of, there seems to be a consistent line with that in done deal in terms of kind of bringing, you know, the real situations together and fleshing them out for people. And that's what people want to understand. They want to understand, you know, what, what do the bad days look like? How much work did you have to put in? Where are the blood, sweat and tears? Do you know what I mean? It's, it's very easy to look at the sort of finished article and think, wow, I want to be like that guy or that lady or whomever, but they don't see the pathway towards it. So as you were talking about earlier, you know, looking at the trajectory, it's, it's, it's rarely ever vertical. It's always squiggly. And then you get to the end because of all of your experiences and rejections and no's and all the rest of it that come with it. And, you know, I'm certainly looking forward to this project whenever that comes out and I'd be, you know, very, very happy to read it. And, you know, it, it really does touch on the kind of, you know, the, the everyday person's um, position and how they can get to it realistically. And I really like the concept that you've managed to speak to other people within your industry and outside of it, who are kind of, you know, masters in, in their field, if you will, and getting their kind of um, two cents with regards to how that works and how that operates. And then that will then res resonate with people because not everybody is fortunate enough to come from, you know, an affluent background or anything like that. Some people are hard workers, some people are naturally talented and, you know, it's, it's up to us and our mindset with regards to how we develop and how we progress. And I think that project certainly is going to help a lot of people. So no, best of luck with that sounds yeah. fantastic the other thing is um a book there's actually a book called mindset by a lady called um carol dweck um this is probably my one of my most favorite books in the world i think i've got it here hold on a second yeah it's no here. problem uh mindset it's literally brilliant and it and maybe we can talk about it a bit, a bit later or it's another time but it's all about growth and fixed mindsets and um you, you know your ability your ability to have a mindset which means you think things are changeable and that things can ultimately improve and that there might well be setbacks and there will be setbacks but you're not defined by it's easy to say in um, you know in uh, abstract um, it's difficult to manage them in reality and some of the things that I talk about, granted, I'm lucky from, you know, a, mid, a middle class family from Liverpool that um, I haven't had some of the, the problems and setbacks that others have had. But I've had plenty of other stuff to have to deal with. But regardless of that, it's um, I find the whole mindset um, uh, point a, a really, really um, important element to anybody that um, to anyone that's interested. So that maybe that's for another day. No, absolutely. No, perfect. And okay, what we'll do then is we'll we'll talk about some of your your current work and and what you what you're doing at the moment because it seems like you're you're spinning numerous plates at the moment with uh, with the day job and everything else. Um, 
I know that you also a podcaster yourself and that you've teamed up with Omar from 21st Club where you discuss, you know, topical issues around football. Um, so can you tell us a bit about how you and Omar first met each other and how you then decided to create a podcast? You know, what are the benefits you guys are seeing from it? You know, can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, um, I think I met Omar just as I joined Sheridan, so coming on six years ago now. Um, and I'd read some of Omar's uh, blog pieces. He, I mean, it's funny, we talk about bloggers. We're, we're, both him and I are basically bloggers in the football industry that have now got jobs in the football industry, is the, uh, is the truth. And um, we've kept in touch. We've done various projects with football clubs, with uh, football agencies and clients more generally. And um, it was the trying to work out when it was maybe towards the end of last year um i was doing my own podcast um done deal podcast that i was just using you know e simple tech with which is anchor mixed with um, an app and my phone and speaking to people and on zoom and doing particular things and i was just said to omar look let's let's see how it goes and let's just do a bit of a chat and we we came up with the um uh, imaginatively titled dan and omar show and <laughs> we stream it um, across different channels uh, and just have a good chat and then get questions and what we've evolved it to in the last few weeks is um, to go on Clubhouse and continue those conversations and it's the same with another one of my clients um, Essen um, who is the founder of a great uh, commercial agency called Be Engaged that I think UCFB have um, invited to speak at different times with um, he looks after loads of elite football players um, across their brand and uh, social, digital and commercial uh, side. And we just talk to people, clients, you know, it, companies um, who just do really cool stuff. Like we spoke to mm. Jake Humphrey last, Jake Humphreys last week, like it was just a normal thing. Or, you know, we spoke to Alfonso Davies, his agent, three weeks ago, talking about all the great stuff that he was doing. And the week before we were... Um, I'm, I'm losing track of all the great conversations we've had. Yeah, we speak to, you know, Jay-Z and Beyonce's um, Rock Nation um, team about, you know, their activation on stuff. And I'm, I'm a little bit sometimes like, how did this come about? Um, but the truth is, is that it's just opportunity, creating opportunity, creating opportunity. And it, I obviously wouldn't have been able to do this 10 or 15 years ago because I was less established in the industry. Mm. But collaborations and collaborating with, people that are much more intelligent, articulate, uh, and know the industry as well, um, just widens your network and it also widens their network, which in part, I guess, is part of the reason why you're doing things like brilliant things like this. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'm a big fan of uh, yours and Omar's podcast. Um, certainly MFG, we, we do really enjoy the uh, 21st Club's insights as well. So, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a really good kind of partnership you guys have struck up. And, you know, your relationship on your podcast is fantastic too. Not to mention your expertise in discussing the topical aspects of football and other sort of um, trending developments. So that's a, that's a really interesting piece that you, you guys get involved in. Um, and not to mention this, you also are a trustee for Milestone UK. Yeah. Um, and for those who aren't familiar with Milestone, they're a charity that normalises discussion around mental health challenges, which is incredibly important and pertinent, um, certainly these days as well. Um, can you tell us a bit about your involvement in this charity and how that came about? Yeah, so there's a few charities with <laughs> Milestone. So uh, Milestone was set up by um, a co-partner of mine at Sheridan's, Chris Padgett, um, who... Um, you know, has, uh, you know, talk, talks a lot about his 
struggles um, with with mental health over the years from various conditions that he's had and uh, and continues to have. And the 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 thing that I felt was so refreshing about what Chris has been so open um, about discussing is um, the usual stuff about you know it sounds trite like it's o- it's okay not to be okay, but it's really important I think to to a degree. Um, I think women have a massive competitive advantage over men generally in that they are incredibly better communicators. Um, I think they are much better at expressing themselves generally. And I think they're much more in tune with their emotive and emotional selves. Um, and that's being surrounded by a lot from a lot of, surrounded with a lot of women that, um, uh, that I can see how well that usually works for them in lots of different ways. And as men, I think we have major problems with um, displaying issues like or points like vulnerability and a lack of strength and dependability and all of those types of issues. Um, and so when um, I, I, I spoke to Chris about this at length and just wanted to get involved in ever shape, way, shape or form, I, I could. You know, that was off the back of watching some brilliant TED Talks that I'd really recommend. One from a lady called Brené Brown, who talks about the pump, the power of vulnerability. Um, and it's one of the most breathtaking talks I've ever um, I've ever watched, really. Um, and the basis of it, more or less, is, is that you only get to show your true, authentic self and not the self that, in the end, won't project well by um, expressing authentic vulnerability, which actually resonates with people more than the, the artificial barriers that people can sometimes put up um, as, a, as a means to show strength and power and control and whatever else it might be. So, um, I, you know, Milestone is very close to my heart because of everything that Chris has been through. Um, I've also on uh, the board of a charity called Football Aid, uh, which is a diabetes charity. And, and that, in effect, going back to right in the beginning, was because I, I heard that you could play on the pitch at Anfield back in 2003 <laughs> um, and managed to convince my dad for two birthdays in advance loans, um, which I, <laughs> which I uh, took for every penny worth and played for 45 minutes at Anfield on the pitch in the kit against um, fellow supporters, which was wow. literally you know one of the best days of my life it was just fantastic um and since then kept in touch proactively just said can i help you with some pro bono legal work which they said yes a few years on after doing that they invited me on the board and then i've for my sins been the chairman for the last uh three years or so of the the charity um so that's been cool um and uh and 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 then also things for a charity called noah's ark children's hospice which is um, uh, the truth is, uh, her, her, the most incredible charity based on the most horrendous of circumstances for for different kids. And over the last year or so, whenever I, I usually don't ask for favours from clients, I have no problem asking for favours for a couple of signed shirts um, to raffle off for Noah's Ark and for Football Aid and for, for Milestone and others. So it's been um, it's been a good year in that sense to try and you know, um, uh, show support for a lot of worthwhile causes. That's incredible, Daniel. And the one thing that I've particularly taken away from what you've discussed there is the symbiotic connection that it has um, in terms of the mental health um, challenges that people have, not just on a day-to-day basis, but also sort of entering sports, whether it's um, 
uh, female footballers suffering um, from sort of, you know, sexist abuse or black players getting the racial abuse and others, that sort of thing. And, you know, there's other aspects that come with it as well. Um, and not to mention the fact that, you know, a lot of these challenges as well are linked to your new book and the kind of synopsis that you're building there. So that kind of bridges another element to, you know, getting to where I'd like to be. What are the sort of circumstances that I may that I may encounter and have to go through? And, you know, what's the best way of equipping myself to deal with them? Um, so there's all a very kind of clear interlink between it all, which I find absolutely fascinating. And, you know, I completely... Um, echo your support with the uh, with the Noah's Ark charity. Um, I worked with charity myself for several years. So um, where I'm from in Suffolk, we had East Anglian Children's Hospice and also the St. Elizabeth Hospice where I worked for for over over 10 years. And, you know, it's it's an incredible set up to be a part of. And, you know, it's it's certainly when this with when we're sort of in a position ourselves to be able to help people, it really does make such a difference. So completely commend you for that it's it's incredible well um and if i just mention one thing which is the last thing you said there um you know that the main bit that i'm trying to get across in this idea for the book is counterintuitively but very much intuitively it's not about you and the reason why i say that is when people i think realize that they they will get as much joy if not more joy from helping others and thinking about the other, you you actually uh, take more away from the experience, mm. which then does lots of wonderful things. It means you stop thinking about yourself more, become more selfless and less selfish. Not that everybody needs that or otherwise, but flipping the idea of this is all about me into how can I help others which will hopefully open opportunities for everybody to win. Like we're not in some zero sum game going on here. This is, this is like things can happen, the good can happen to a lot of people. Then, you know, that's a really important mindset shift, I think as well. Oh, I couldn't agree with you more, Daniel. Absolutely. And just before we go on to the uh, final part of the podcast in terms of the Focus 5 section, um, tell us about 13, your brand. Yes, yeah, so uh, just as we're talking about vulnerability and all that type of stuff, um, yeah, my my mum, the best part of a decade ago, was diagnosed with cancer. Um, we had a tough, she had the toughest time, but we all had a tough time as a family, sort of dealing with that for quite some time. Um, she had relapsed about five and a half years ago now, but please God, she's been she's been great since then, um, with various treatments and pretty groundbreaking treatments that. Uh, a doctor, Dr. John Krell has, um, has, you know, literally been a lifesaver for, and instead really of doing the whole, um, uh, doing, uh, the whole running a marathon or, um, other stuff, which I wouldn't be able to do because my knees are not particularly great anymore. Uh, I, I, yeah, had this idea of thinking about just, you know, um, designing a t-shirt and selling a t-shirt is the truth. And, um, when I, after I did a bit of research to find actually ways that I could do more than just a T-shirt, um, it very quickly became clear that I could do a little bit of a, you know, a, um, a fashion brand and a very small one at that, but just outsource everything really is the truth. And it's a very relatively straightforward process. So I, um, uh, yeah, and, and the name 13 uh, in the Jewish religion, I'm Jewish, is, is, is a pretty um, um, special and lucky number um, is the truth in a lot of ways. 
So, uh, but I know that it is quite Marmite to people as well. It's sort of 13 is seen by lots that they don't want to sit on the 13th seat or stay on the 13th floor or sit on the 13th row or whatever else it might be. But um, 13 then sort of creates a little bit of a, um, a positive, well, a, a, a talk through labels. So, um, yeah. And so over the last 19, 20 months, we've built um, uh, just a, a store um, and um, a brand and, uh, you know, raised the best part of about £10,000 for uh, John Krell's charity uh, research into, you know, different types of breast and ovarian cancer, which has been, yeah, it's been fantastic. Yeah, it's a fantastic organisation that you've you've created there, and the fact that the proceeds go towards uh, Mr. Krell's research as well, certainly for the influence that she's had on your mum, and you know, there's there's so many people that are directly or indirectly affected by cancer. Um, it's it's just horrifying. So you know, I'm very proud to have purchased my hat from your thirteen brand, which I've got here with me today. Um, fantastic fantastic organization i'd encourage anybody to give them a look and get something on there it's an amazing cause and something that we should all be proud to be associated with so just adding on to the other aspects of your work and the various plates that you're managing to spin concurrently um as it is can you tell us what it's like to be a uh, solicitor in the sporting industry so you've mentioned you work with Sheridan's within the sports and entertainment department can you give any sort of budding uh, sports lawyers on the uh, on the podcast some advice with regards to what a day-to-day -day role of a sports lawyer consists of yeah um it it, it can be so varied it's untrue um and it also depends on like I'm I'm you know, privileged enough to be one of the senior lawyers in the team now um, and there's a team of 12 of us now that are doing you know, just a full range of loads of different things. So, you know, I, I'll give you a brief, um, uh, a brief rundown of what I did today is the truth. So um, I started speaking to um, a client on uh, Bitcoin and um, uh, NFT related um, content issues um, and planning. I then spent the next hour uh, reviewing um, a, um, a Premier League players contract um, for a renewal. Um, I then was speaking to someone else about uh, a potential image rights dispute. Um, I was then doing stuff in relation to um, uh, some broadcasting content issues. Um, I was then chatting to someone about a commercial contract. And then I was drafting, helping draft a consultancy agreement and then an influencer endorsement agreement. Um, so what I mean by all of that is it's so varied a lot of the time that, that there are so many different things I can be, uh, you know, doing at any one time is the truth um, across lots of different areas. If it's, you know, compliance, regulatory, disciplinary, um, contracts, intellectual property, endorsement, um, particular types of technology um, and a variety of different sports. So, mm. uh, yeah, it can be quite varied to put it mildly. <laughs> extremely varied i mean so they those particular matters what you're dealing with simply just today yeah and and the truth is is that like you know it's it's not um it's no secret to say that any lawyer that gets more senior in their space um is usually supervising and delegating a lot of the work to more juniors as well as obviously taking control of particular elements so that then you're you know potentially juggling lots um and large numbers of volumes of matters that then you've just got to keep on top of um, ensure that 
you know, you're thinking about strategy and execution and implementation and uh, second guessing other people being proactive and reactive and then working across your team on the various things that you you know you got going at any one time. So a lot of the time I'm checking in with the people that I'm working with alongside um, on various things and making sure that's all part of the, uh, you know, relatively running as smoothly as possible. Because the other part of my job really is, um, you know, I'm ultimately one of the ones responsible for bringing in the the work to the to the practice. You know, there's there's no point being the best technical lawyer in the world if you've got no work to be able to um, um, to to do. And so, um, a lot of my um, you know uh, client facing emphasis is on speaking to clients on a regular basis, understanding what they need, making sure they're aware of the type of stuff that we can do, and you know, create opportunities, make introductions, build networks, um, think about collaborating on stuff, thinking about events, um, uh, building, you know, literally building trust and goodwill so that when things that crop up, then that people need a hand with stuff that, you know, we're here and able to help. Excellent. And the slight sort of curveball, I know this may kind of um, tread on the lines of of speculation, but you mentioned you're dealing with a, a particular issue around Bitcoin. Um, could you ever see sort of or reasonably foresee any particular cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin ever being used in player transfers? There already have been. It always really? Happened. Yeah, it's already happened. So um, and, you know, I think it was announced. I think it was even today that PayPal are going to start engaging with crypto as well. So that that's how mainstream crypto has got. I'm not the crypto expert. Far from it. Um, but there are a number of guys in our wider crypto um, and tech and data team that that are doing this type of work day in day out. I'm seeing the opportunities on the the NFT side and the intellectual property side to, you know, um, see where some of my clients and educate some of my clients as to what might be some of the benefits, but also make them fully aware that there's some uh, there's some pitfalls as well as the truth. Yeah, it's very interesting to see if that will make a bit more of a sort of significant steer into football if other teams start to sort of, you know, um, get involved with that or whether it is going to be something that's kind of monitored and regulated a bit more as it starts to get potentially introduced into the into the modern game. But I guess it remains to be seen, really, but it really is kind of um, accelerating through the, through the environment at the moment, isn't it? Um, but no, that's great, Daniel. Thank you so much. It's, it's really interesting to understand, you know, sort of at high level, um, the, the sort of day-to-day matters that you you deal with. Um, naturally, there is a wide variety in it, and it does require a lot of hard work and a lot of sort of expertise and explicit understanding. Um, so, no, that's that's really good to to understand in terms of what it takes and where where sports lawyers sort of earn their crust, I guess. Um, now, moving on to the sort of final section of the of the interview. So um, at Modern Football Group, what we do is we focus on something called the Focus Five, um, as we discussed at the beginning. So essentially, it's just five questions focused on career steps and advice to give listeners who want to break into the industry. So very basic, very simply. First question, um, how did you get into the industry? Naturally, going to university to acquire your degree, as we've discussed, um, but was it purely sort of, you know, bang on doors, sending emails, uploading content? Were you sending out various applications for training contracts? How did you break into the industry? Yeah, I was um, off the back of only applying to a few sports law firms one year in my second year and getting uh, eight rejections. Um, 
you know, I realized that actually I needed to be a lot cleverer about my application process, which was I shouldn't be just vain enough to think that the only thing or closed enough that the only thing that I want to do is sports is the truth. And so um, my overall aim was to make a lot more applications and be open enough to the variety of different legal um, uh, careers that I could possibly um, have. And that was ultimately the, the point. Um, think about that variety. Don't be closed off to sectors and particular industries. But whilst at the same time, if there are particular things that take your interest and sport was obviously one of those things that, you know, I almost then developed that identity knowledge side hustle that we've talked about previously and um and and that was effectively my very patient long-term slow burn routine perfect and what would you say are your biggest challenges in getting into the industry and how did you overcome them personally it's the same stuff i mean if you go back to basics it's you know law um and how to be a good lawyer um and there's all the types of stuff that happens, you know, you can't expect to know it all when you're uh, a young aspiring person. Do you, do you get, you know, comments that um, you would like you didn't get on appraisals? Do you get things you can always improve on? Yes. Are there always things, attention to detail or challenges or looking elsewhere for positions or, um, you know, not, you know, conflicting with people at different times and all the usual stuff that, happens in every and any office environment um, the, the, there was a great um, there was a great phrase that um, when I was interviewing um, someone for my for, for the, the new possible book project um, David Lampett um, who's the chief executive of um, one of the biggest sports data companies called Sport Radar and he said one of the things he looks for in uh, when he's recruiting is two things one someone being ambitious which is the cross between humble and ambitious i.e what seems to be like let your let your outputs do the talking rather than your mouth do the talking um, if that's the right way of putting it maybe um, but also that he looks for people that have had challenges um, that have faced issues because ultimately if you've just had this plain sailing academic life and you know normal life and then stuff comes up there are always going to be bumps and sometimes quite significant bumps in the road and usually though it's the ones that know themselves pretty well to understand to a degree about how to sometimes scrape yourself off the tarmac um, and even if you're feeling really rubbish about a situation um being persistent and um, feel comfortable enough in your own skin that you can get better you can improve and and do better and face some of those things head on because I think sometimes the misunderstanding is that the people that are successful have had a plain sailing route I, I sometimes think that might be the case I don't know but from a lot of the people that I've spoken to it's not that people haven't faced failure and challenges <clears throat> it's just they're willing to learn better from failure and challenges than, than some where they might not have that strength because of lots of different reasons again, or just that sheer dogged mindedness to, to literally persevere and keep going. Incredible. Absolutely. And what would you say, Daniel, personally speaking from your own perspective, what are the key aspects that has driven you to become as successful as you are? Obviously you meant you mentioned that you're, you know, you're, you're very sort of um, quite, psychologically switched on in terms of you seek 
opportunity and you understand it and you allow certain challenges to turn into something that can be you know a chance to develop and and you know um extend your skills what would you say are the key aspects that you give to anybody listening now to be a sports lawyer what does it take um i the truth is uh, and it sounds uh, hopefully it doesn't come across as conceited or otherwise i don't necessarily see myself as successful maybe that's part of the the benefit of it is like um, I don't mean it badly, but it's almost how you fra- how do you frame a question based on um, something that you're that I'm not quite sure is necessarily the case or not? Because I think it's always really easy to go well if you have good attention to detail and you are get better at drafting and your communication skills can improve and you're able to speak to people in a tangible you know. Um, authoritative yet um, ambitious way, and all of those type of things. They they are the they are the prerequisites and the givens. They're the things you should hopefully get better at. But I think a lot of the time, the truth is, is that there's no there's no easy sugar coated answer to this. I think genuinely, the people that I see do pretty well and have only measured success is a different question in itself. Are a little bit obsessive. Um, and um, whose identity um, is very much wrapped sometimes up in their in their being. And the positive side is um, you, you get so immersed in everything that you're doing, which is great. The negative side is that you're so immersed in everything you're doing, and it's great um, because it's a 24-7 thing, no matter what, if you want to be a, a football lawyer or if you want to be um, a music artist or if not that I'm comparing myself to a music artist <laughs> um, or you know anything else that's seen in the public eye as an outcome of something that a lot of people want to necessarily do. I can talk about hard work and perseverance is the truth all day long is the tr- uh, in, in a way. But ultimately, it's something that comes from within you a little bit, which is a bit like, um, I'm just going to keep. I'm just going to keep going on this because you know, mm. for the best part of seven or eight years, I wasn't really doing any glamorous stuff. I wasn't really doing that much work in the specific football sector. I was reading, speaking, using that opportunity to to try and build my foundations. But ultimately. Um, I wasn't in it for the glamour then, just as I'm not in it for the the glamour now. It's just, in a way, football saved me because football is something that I know so much, I feel that I know so much about, that is so part of me that it becomes quite a natural thing to want to do this interview with you at half past eight on a a weekday um, in the same way that I will take a call at two o'clock in the morning if I need to from a client because we need to do something first thing in the next morning. The downside of that is that that sometimes isn't seen by a lot of people as potentially a very healthy work-life uh, lifestyle balance. But again, that that's just, you know, sometimes a bit of an artificial construct about lifestyle balance, full stop. I think if you want to do a lot of cool stuff, you make it your identity and you make your routines to happen in certain ways so that the, all of the things that you do or ma- the vast majority of things that you do inside and outside of work are just you as a as a whole more than anything else so sorry a very uh, long-winded um uh uh yeah way of uh, answering what was probably actually a quite simple question no not at all it was very honest and very transparent and you know that's that's the sort of thing there isn't a magic pill to to gain you know like you say um a subjective measure of success um there is certain 
other measures and metrics that people use to measure you know measure their own success but it's the work that you undertake to drive yourself there and it's interesting to hear you say um you know um what you did about your specific journeys and you know what you've deemed to be um useful in your own career and it's it's good to you know kind of inform everybody else who's listening to this you know of how you interpret that and what your you know mindset is i think it's fantastic um and again clearly you have an extraordinary repertoire of skills um daniel and incredible experiences all of which must have resonating spots in your memory however out of everything so far what would you say is the best thing about your career to date or is there a notable achievement or experience or situation which you know sort of um bears a bit more significant in your memory than others um look there are always there are always things that go on if it's if it's a high profile takeover a transfer that you've worked really hard on a commercial deal um getting people out of problems <laughs> solving issues um that that's the label and the 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 um the high profile stuff is just the name on top of the thing that i have just said and that's great and it's great for, in a way for me and it's great for people to see that you're doing that type of stuff um and it's great for the ego as well is the truth um but ultimately, um, my aim is to try and, on a daily basis, do the thing that I like doing. And that partly involves the work that I do, but actually it mainly involves the people that I do the work with. Um, and the reason I say that, and again, I don't want to come across as soppy and all... Um, you know, sentimental, but, you know, I, I, and what I've really missed this year over COVID is just a chance to go into the office and see the guys and girls in my team and the wider team of like, literally like go in and chat sport and talk about issues and laugh about stuff and find problems to solve and deal with, with stuff more generally. So, um, I can easily go, this player transfer was amazing and this club takeover was fantastic. But in the end, that's just for my ego to say, look how great I am at doing this particular thing that came across. The, the truth is, is that you gain fulfillment, I think, from working with really lovely people that um, you get a kick out of a daily buzz of, you know, I'm not saying it's perfect every day of the week for, for 365 days of the year, but I enjoy going into the office and seeing everybody. And I think that's um, not, not a bad measure is the truth. No, that's brilliant. Really, really nice summary of that, Daniel. Thank you. Um, and finally, what advice would you give to yourself when you were younger? What would be the key sort of advice that you would have given yourself? Don't fuck it up. <laughs> <laughs> because I'm quite sorry. Is that not the language used for this? That's absolutely fine. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so this is the thing that when I get this question, I so I get into a, a, a actually an interesting debate with myself and with the interviewer. So I'm going to go. I'm just going to just run this through. So are you saying I'm going back in time to speak to my former self about what you would do differently, or are you because then me me giving that advice to my past self then would change my potential future? So my the actual point that I would think about is. 
I wouldn't want to tell my my past self anything because then if I told my past self anything, I probably wouldn't be here doing this conversation now with you. <laughs> that's that's very interesting. What? Tell me a bit more about that then. Well, it's making a fundamental assumption that time travel is possible. But outside <laughs> of um, outside of that, my view is is that um, uh, any path that isn't the path that's been trodden would lead to a different outcome. Mm. Um, as a as a sort of um uh yeah as a chaos theory advocate of, of sorts so um but taking away all of that nonsense that i've just spouted for the last three minutes um it's the advice that i give to people now to a degree mm. and it's the advice hopefully that i will try and articulate in this book and um, that i'm trying to do which is any, anything optimistically anything's possible but you've got to take loads of proactive steps consistently over a long period of time so that all of those things can compound to create the maximum amount of opportunities for you to succeed and if you can do all of those things you're on a great path oh, that's perfect daniel thank you so much for being a part of this podcast with us this evening it's been incredible insightful i'm glad everybody listening to this has been able to you know dive into your life and understand your challenges and what you've gone through and there's some wonderful tips in there which you know are just are just invaluable um so i thank you so much for that daniel um and just to let everybody know as well we'll be uploading in our description links to um to the podcast itself daniel's website his respected charities the clothing website and where to find his book done deal and also as an incredible goodwill gesture daniel has also provided a very special offer for us by using the code of mfg20 uh, the purchaser will be able to get 20% off of the items on Daniel's 13 clothing brand website. So thank you very much for that, Daniel. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure. You're welcome here absolutely anytime. And again, it's it's just been a very, very good experience for everybody. So thank you. Thanks for having me on. And hopefully we can do some more stuff in the future together. Absolutely. Thank you. Modern Football Group. Same game, viewed differently.